Hello and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you are all doing very well. I hope you are doing fantastic. Uh, welcome to the 136th episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. So, before we get into the questions which are going to be from the live chat today, let us see who all is there with us. And I am sure lots of interesting things are happening worldwide that we could talk about. So, let us see who all is there. I can see Suraj, Knowledge with Anadi, Vivek, Tanai, Rita, Adesh, Darshan, Avirup, Haripriya, Kapil, Khadwal, Abhi, Ved, Tanay, Somya, Guhati, Ayush, Death Note, Madhav, Manu, Darshan, Mr. India, Divya, LE06, Ranjan Kumar, Shubham, Tathagat, Imon, Tushar, Sena, Nilesh, Alpha, Durga, Mo, Pinky Kumari, Kiran, Priyanshi, Rithik, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Rizul, Harsh, Ankan, Goblet Fire, Abhijit Chanakya, Ajay, Pooja Maurya, Praful, Vaibhav, Nitesh, Vikrant, Hakuna Matata, Pankaj, Ilyas, Manoj, Rahul, Aditya, and Lageraho Online, Goblet Fire, Vanshika, and a whole lot of other people, Chering Bhutia, Vladimir Adityanath, Muskan, Harsh, Aditya, uh, and a lot of people. Thank you all for being on the show with us. And let us get into the questions. So what questions do we have for today? What questions do we have? Let us see what questions we have. Uh, let's see. Start asking your questions and I'll pick as many as I can. So uh, I think we should start where we should start. <laughs> Smart Money asks... Is Sri Jinping really under house arrest? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know what's happening in China. You know, there are these rumors swirling around on social media, mostly on social media, some on YouTube, etc. Rumors about Sri Jinping having disappeared. He is no longer visible. Uh, there was some big meeting or convention or something in which he uh, did not appear, but he gave a recorded, pre-recorded message that somebody else read out for him. That sort of thing. Uh, the situation in Beijing is weird. All the flights are being cancelled. Thousands of flights have been cancelled. Uh, let's take a look at what uh, what the situation in Beijing is like. Flightradar24.com. Let's see that. One second. Let me put that on the screen. And let's see what Beijing looks like right now. What's happening in Beijing? Uh, here we are. Here we are. Come on. All right. This is Flight Radar 24. Let's go into China, which is east of India. Beijing is the northeast of China. So where is Beijing? Ah, Beijing. Check it out. Beijing is typically the busiest airport in China. And if you look here, there's nothing happening. There's nothing happening in Beijing. Where are the planes? Where are the aircraft? Very few flights around Beijing and the entire airspace seems to have been cleared out, which is extremely strange. I hear that thousands of trains have been cancelled. Yes, there are definitely planes going around, taking off and coming down uh, in other parts of China, but Beijing suspiciously very clear. So there is clearly some sort of abnormal situation in China. And uh, it, it appears that Mr. Uh, Xi Jinping... Uh, rushed back to to China to Beijing from the SCO summit where he participated in uh, Samarkand, Uzbekistan, I think, where Mr. Modi was there, Mr. Putin was there, and various other uh, leaders of the SCO were there. So, Mr. 
Xi Jinping rushed back to China apparently and after that he has not been seen. That's what one hears. And there is no official confirmation or denial from the various Chinese uh, news outlets, media outlets from their various officials. Nothing. They are quiet about this tight-lipped. And uh, there is no actual proof as of today that something has happened, maybe a coup has happened. But there is nothing that proves that a coup hasn't happened either. You know, so we are kind of in limbo. We don't have a confirmation either for or against a coup. Now, I have uh, spoken about this various times uh, in the past year or, year or so on this channel that a coup is always on the cards when it comes to China. China is a one-party dictatorship, right? And uh, there's no democracy within the Communist Party and in China. It's typically the strongest and most powerful leader who makes his way to the top. Typically, it's a he. Yeah, it's never been a she. It's it's the most brutal, the most cutthroat leader who makes the, his way to the top. And the leader will continue as long as he or she, as long as he typically uh, serves the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party, of enriching the party and taking the nation forward in the right direction, which they, which they want and so on. And they obviously would not want a leader to become too powerful. Yeah. And there is a hierarchy in the Chinese Communist Party, a power structure. These, the core leadership is called the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party, of the CCP, which is a bunch, a small number of very powerful individuals, the most powerful individuals in China. And uh, out of that group, uh, that core group, one leader is typically chosen. It's not an election, it's a, it's a selection. And Mr. Xi Jinping has been around for 10 years now. Typically, a leader is chosen for five years. Now, he's been around for 10 years. And this, uh, by the end of this year, maybe in October, he was supposed to be reselected for another five-year term. right? So, um, he obviously has lots of enemies within the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese political system is a one-party system. It's extremely competitive. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You rise to the top, you're going to make thousands of enemies. Mr. Xi Jinping has left lots of political opponents in his wake. Many of them have been imprisoned for corruption or whatever and so on. He's made lots of enemies, but he, as long as he has the control of the reins of power, he is untouchable. But there will be sections in the Chinese Communist Party who resent uh, what he has done. And who will be envious of his position and who would seek to replace him. And that's a constant power struggle that goes on in any organization, whether it's uh, dictatorial or democratic or whatever. We see this everywhere, but in China, it's especially accentuated. So what is the deal? Well, as of today, as of right now, what is the date today? Today is the, the, the what is the date? Uh, today is the 24th of September, 2022. As of today, we don't know what the situation is. The situation seems to be very very ambiguous. We don't know. Yeah, It looks like there could be something going on. I just showed you what's happening in Beijing. All the flights have been cancelled. That is extremely weird. Beijing is the one of the busiest airports in the entire world. And look at this. It's like crickets. Nothing happening here. Which is extremely unusual. I cannot remember the last last time something like this happened in Beijing. And not only the airport, thousands of play uh, of trains have been cancelled, especially in the Beijing area and all that. So clearly something unusual happening. Now we don't know what it is. It's not. I mean, in the past the Chinese have shut down the country at various points in time and various cities like uh, Shanghai, for instance, and even Beijing and other places because of the COVID outbreak, right? The COVID pandemic. And because of because they have this very strict no COVID policy, they would typically uh, shut down a city or an entire province for a month, two months, who knows how long. And 
so during the past two years various such things have happened but this doesn't look like it's covid that's that's appeared uh, suddenly out of nowhere overnight that that doesn't make sense so clearly something is happening and mr xi jinping has not been seen in public since the sco summit since he rushed back home after the sco summit so what is the possible what are the possibilities what, are, what what could have gone what could have happened first maybe there's a coup second maybe there's some new virus has come out and everybody is uh, scampering for cover third maybe he's unwell that's also a possibility mr xi jinping isn't the healthiest person even when he was first appointed as the uh, leader of china 10 years ago he disappeared for a month or two to take care of some health issues yeah so yeah if you look at him he's not the slimmest person he's kind of overweight and he may have health issues he's not, he's not the youngest person either he's most likely in his late 60s early 70s somewhere around there most likely late, late 60s yeah so there could be a possibly several reasons why uh, mr shijin pick has disappeared but that if he has health issues that doesn't account for the closure of the airspace around beijing yeah and some media outlets are saying that maybe uh, the chinese military is conducting some exercises and that's why they have closed down the airspace well doesn't quite add up yeah and if they are really closing down the air, airspace for military purposes then it's it's alarm bells all around china you know if the chinese are closing down significant portions of the airspace for whatever they're doing so yeah as of today we don't know what's happening but clearly something strange is happening in china and uh, let's see let's see what happens we'll have to keep an eye on this tomorrow i will revisit this topic again hopefully with hopefully with some new information which will hopefully give us some clarity but that's where we are right now i have a couple of uh, videos on this channel one or two by myself about why a coup is always on the cards in china I'll look it up search it on my channel a coup is always on the cards in china and there's another video uh, with uh, from the podcast between um, with me and dr edward luthwak who's uh, one of the great uh, geo strategists alive today so in that video he has he explains how a coup would happen possibly against mr xi jinping you know so if you're interested do check out those videos all right let's see what else we have what else do we have hum 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 xi jinping house arrest that's what i'm talking about my dear friends that's what i'm talking about i just spoke about it now um Rishi says why do you think Zelensky from Ukraine backed India's permanent UNSC membership bid even when India didn't condemn Russia I I'm not aware of what Mr Zelensky had said or not said but you know what we are talking about here we're talking about a statement what is a statement it's words words make no difference people indians are so enamored with words he said this he has supported us he has supported nothing a statement is like a feather in the wind the wind will blow and the feather will disappear you'll never see it again statements and words are ephemeral they mean nothing if they truly if zelensky truly wants to back india's claim then he should lobby support with the with his bosses in the united states right and other nations a, a statement makes no difference it, it changes nothing in the world i can make 50 statements today and uh, 3 months from now nobody will remember that yeah and and politicians they make statements all the time they make statements on the record and then they contract it themselves a week later and they don't care about that yeah so these statements mean nothing the only thing that matters is actual actions and we see no actions about this you see the americans uh, saying from time to time that they, they support india's bid for whatever permanent un unsc membership have they done a single thing about that 
have they taken a single step in that direction about opening up the possibility for india's membership permanent membership in the unsc no they've done nothing words 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 please stop getting being enamored with words words mean nothing words are the currency of the politicians and in geopolitics you can say anything you want but at the end of the day what you do what your actions are that's the only thing that matters and so this is pointless it is it is irrelevant in the uh, geopolitical context uh all right vannos says why didn't the british colonize nepal when they whereas they managed to capture the entire subcontinent of india was there any specific reason for that the british even launched an expedition into tibet in, in which they are kind of um, um brought tibet to a certain extent under their uh, not exactly control but they imposed certain conditions trade conditions etc on tibet and they opened up tibet to future exploration by them in the context of the great game that was being played geopolitically between uh, the the british empire the russians the turks and so on and so forth for control of central asia yeah uh, so why didn't the british colonize nepal you know the nepalese were only in name not colonize of course the british did not uh, see first of all nepal as you know is a mountainous hilly region there is a tarai region in the south and then there's the mountainous hilly region in the north and that's where kathmandu is ensconced right kathmandu the capital city there's not much of value that sits in nepal nepal isn't a resource rich region it doesn't produce much yeah nepal has always been an extension of the indian subcontinent it's part of the indian subcontinent it's always been part of various indian empires and kingdoms here yeah? and there's nothing much specifically that grows there so the british decided to use nepal as a buffer state between british india and tibet where there were there were these chinese claims you know the chinese were claiming uh, the chinese were interfering in tibet and there was a possibility of a confrontation of some kind between the british raj and the chinese empire from time to time so they wanted to keep a, a region as a buffer state and they chose nepal for that and yet you see that the nepal were great the nepalese were greatly dependent on the british for a variety of things for instance the entire practice of sending uh gorkha soldiers to the british army began during this period yeah even today various uh, uh gurkha soldiers still serve in the in the british armed forces and they're not treated quite well right they don't get the kind of same pensions as the, as the british guys get and all that so and yet it's it's a step forward for them it's it's uh, an opportunity for a good future so the british uh, and and if you recall if you recall the incident in jallianwala bag uh, the soldiers who fired at the uh, at the at the at the innocent people men women children in jalanwala bag half of them were either balochi or pashtun and half of them were gurkhas right so that tells you the whole story i mean that tells you a significant amount uh, that you need to understand that nepal may technically not have been under british rule the british may not have had a political agent in nepal the british may not have collected taxes from nepal and yet nepal was essentially entirely at, at, at the mercy of the british raj if the nepalese monarchy did not you know a uh, foreign line with all the demands of the british then they would have been annexed anytime the british were in a position to annex nepal anytime they wanted but they did not choose to do that they chose not to do that in order to not get embroiled in any situation or scenario with china when china was making claims to tibet and there was all this thing happening so that's what they wanted to do and that's why uh, it was not officially annexed or colonized
Right. What other questions do we have? Uh, uh, what do you think of Iranian women burning burqas? Well, it's entirely up to the Iranian ladies what they want to do and the people of Iran. I think uh, the people should have a choice in whatever they want to do. Whether they want to wear something, they don't want to wear something. I think it's their business. It's their internal matter. Uh, we should not get excited about anything that's happening there. It's not our business. Uh, the entire geopolitical thing is, um, you know, world affairs in inter international affairs is predicated on the principle of non-interference. So as far as, as long as Iran doesn't interfere in Indi India's internal matters, we should not interfere in their matters. Whatever is happening there is for them to decide, the people and the government. If there is a clash between the people and the government, well, one will come out on top and that's how it goes. At the end of the day, it's about power and control. So... Uh, what do I think of the Iranian women doing this? Well, it is their choice. And uh, let the people of Iran decide what they want in the long run. That's what I would say. All right. YouTube account says, has communism ever been implemented in the exact way of Karl Marx? How could that society be like? Well, if you look at what Karl Marx wrote, he wrote voluminous uh, volumes. One is... Uh, uh, what is it called? The Communist Manifesto. The second one is uh, Das Kapital, right? Das Kapital is a massively enormous book. I don't think anybody reads that, but it's there, you know. So the thicker the book you write, the more eminent you become. As And, and now he's considered to be a philosopher. So what kind of communism did he envisage? Karl Marx envisaged that a bourgeois capitalist society should be destroyed via a communist revolution. Right? A revolution led by the proletariat, which is the working classes. So he wanted the workers to unite and, and overthrow the rulers, the capitalists and the bourgeois, means those who, who benefit from, from capitalism. And so he wanted a communist revolution in any bourgeois and capitalist society. After that, he did not say anything about what kind of society should exist after the so-called revolution supposedly succeeds. So here's the problem with Marxism. When you advocate a revolution, you are advocating violence. You're advocating mobs and rampages on the streets by the workers, right? You're advocating violence, a violent overthrow of the existing uh, government. That's what you're ad uh, advocating. Now, Karl Marx did not specify what sort of leadership this revolution should have. What kind of people should be the leaders of such a communist revolution? Yeah, He did not say whether such leaders should be elected, they should be appointed, or just some thugs should get together and the biggest thug should rule. Typically, in a violent revolution, it's the most violent elements of society that come together and come to the top as the leaders. The more brutal and more violent you are, the higher you rise in a violent society. That's how it works. So when you advocate a revolution that is a violent overthrow, of the government, you're typically going to have the most brutal and most violent people rising to the top, the most ruthless people. And that's what you see all the time in any communist society. In the past, you've seen that, right? So Mr. Karl Marx did not specify what sort of leadership he wanted to lead the communist revolution, the revolution of, pro of the proletariat. And then he said that he wanted the 
post revolution society to be a dictatorship of the proletariat which means a, a core government that will rule the entire country on behalf of the workers now who will elect this government and its leaders will it be a democratic election or will these will the tough and and violent and brutal guys who led the revolution will they lead this as the dictators so he did not specify any of these things and that's where there is so much ambiguity and that's why there are so many problems with communism because it's always the most brutal people who rise to the top look at the chinese communist party i mean they did succeed in uh, uh, in uh, evicting the kuomintang and and uh, and uh, defeating the japanese and uh, taking over the country but look at the incredible brutality the chinese communist party perpetrated on the people of china in the 20th century close to 100 million people must have died in in the various uh, excesses that they perpetrated the great uh, leap forward uh, the the i don't know what all they did right i don't uh, remember exactly but uh, the biggest culprit was mao zedong crazy guy absolutely crazy guy but he is revered and loved by many chinese even today and they say that what he did was right he cleansed the society of the of the of the bad elements yeah well 100 million people that's how bad the society was <laughs> i don't know what the number is some say 40 million some say 80 million some say 100 million whatever it is even a million is 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 incredibly ridiculous and you see the same thing in other places look at the ussr look at this stalinist brutality in the ussr look at what he did in in novorossiya in in ukraine the whole of the more the deliberate starvation of the people and all the other things that happened in stalinist russia millions of people died during that phase as well and even later the system was extremely oppressive wasn't it right uh collective forced collectivization no right to property and uh, you know the the and the kgb was everywhere eyes and ears everywhere you don't know who was who was your friend who was your enemy even your family could be somebody you could have there who could betray you you saw the same thing in east germany the stasi yes the secret police that would spy upon the people and so on and so forth so that's the problem with communism karl marx did not specify clearly what sort of society he wanted in the post revolution era when the communists take power he specified nothing and that's why it's always been this way right he was not clear about what he was uh, prescribing for society and that's the biggest problem he he created he he called for a revolution he called for violence he called for these overthrows he said he wants the dictatorship of the proletariat and he created this wonderful pseudo intellectual framework with these fantastic words like proletariat and bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and and uh, lumpen elements and the lumpen proletariat it sounds so intellectual it sounds so intelligent when you absorb karl marx's terminology and you start giving speeches with that people think that you got everything figured out you don't you understand everything and it's typically the most brutal people who are drawn to the communist ideology because it serves them and 99% of people who espouse communism are the cannon fodder the people on the streets they will benefit not at all from it it's only a very small percentage of the population that ends up benefiting the most they end up uh, hoarding 100% of the power and 100% of the wealth of the entire nation and they rule as a dictatorship of the, of the proletariat that is the problem with communism so that's why uh, because so communism has never been implemented in the exact way of karl marx because he did not specify any exact way at all that's the problem with him
Uh, <clears throat> Yug says, how do we stop drain of brain? Well, you need to make the country better. You need to have a better education system. You need to have meritocracy in the nation. See, the problem is that there is no meritocracy in India. In government jobs, you have all the reservations. In, in, in the education system, in universities, in colleges, you have these massive amounts of reservations. And uh, there is so much corruption. There is so much misgovernance. The roads are bad. The traffic is always congested. Cities, whenever it rains, they go underwater from time to time, especially even, even large cities. And there are so many problems. If you have a society that is structured in this manner, where all the institutions are still colonial in nature, where the institutions do not serve carry out the functions that they are supposed to carry out. When you have a, a nation that is built like this, then people are going to try and leave for better prospects. They may love the nation and the culture and the civilization, but they will go out of the country for the sake of themselves, their better life, and for the sake of the children. And that's why Indians have been leaving India from for generations, typically to in English-speaking nations, typically the US or, or the UK, nowadays even to Australia. Some Indians are going to other countries as well maybe in Europe or whatever. So that is the cause of brain drain, right? So you need to restructure the country, re I mean, uh, reform all the various uh, institutions in the country, the education system. You need to make India a completely meritocratic country. Everybody should get enough opportunities, multiple opportunities. You know, once you take a job, you should not have the job for life. You should have multiple options. You should be able to change careers whatever time you want, yeah? So you need to offer people multiple opportunities and you need to offer people the possibility to rise to the highest of their potential. Any nation that offers this is going to be very attractive, not only to its own citizens, but to outsiders as well. And typically, for the longest time, it's been the US that has offered this. The US is a fully capitalist nation. There are people in the US who have to struggle to even put food on the table. They do two jobs, three, do three jobs in a day. They sleep four hours, five hours a day. And even after working so much, they're able to only barely put food on the table for their families, right? It's the people who don't have any skills in education. But if you are educated, if you have skills, then the sky is the limit for you in the US. So typically Indians who go there are very highly educated. And that's why anybody who acquires a master's level education, you know, university level education wants to Im immigrate to the US. US. Because of all this, because in the US, as long as you keep your culture, you know, you subdue your culture, don't, don't uh, show any pride in your culture. And as long as you assimilate and you work hard, you can rise very high. And you see all kinds of uh, various American companies have Indian CEOs. A whole bunch of major American corporations have Indian CEOs, right? So, in, And you have many companies in Silicon Valley that have been founded by Indians and so on, Indian origin people. So you give people the opportunity to rise to the, uh, to the fullest of their potential, they will find that attractive. So India needs to do that. India needs to find ways of do that. There are so many issues in India. Transportation is bad. The infrastructure is bad. The roads are bad. There is no rule of law and order. And some people get upset when I say there's no rule of law. Go outside your house and stand in the street. Do you see anybody following traffic rules? Do you see any government official enforcing traffic rules? There you go. There is no rule of law. Yeah. So there are all these issues. You fix the issues, India will again become attractive for not only Indians, for but even for outsiders. You rise to a certain level of greatness, people will stop leaving. So how do you stop brain drain? Brain drain by making India great again. It's a cliched phrase, but that's the deal. India always has been the greatest civilization, the most prosperous civilization. You go back on track with that, 
everybody is going to come back. Even those who have left India 10, 20 years ago for better prospects in other nations, they will be highly tempted to come back. And you give enough opportunities, everybody will come back. So that's what needs to happen, right? That's what needs to happen. All right, all right, all right. Some, some, what other questions? Um, what did people eat during the Rama and Ida? Well, we don't have any textual evidence of what people used to eat. We do have some stories from the Rama and that Lord Rama was eating those berries, bear, you know, that lady offered him shabari and so on. Um, so I don't, we don't have any actual evidence of what people used to eat or not eat. Yes, India is a massive, massive, massive place. It's an enormous subcontinent sized region. In case you're not aware, let me show you. Yeah, look at the maps. Here's the map. Where's the map? Come on, map. Here we are. See how large India is. Enormous. I mean, we Indians are used to seeing this thing and it looks very small, but you can fit France and Germany and Spain and the UK and I'm sure a little bit more inside the Indian subcontinent and still have room to spare. It's enormous. So what did people eat? People would have eaten different kinds of diets in different parts of, in different parts of India, right? So when you talk about Ayodhya, it was part of the Kosala Mahajanapada and then you have Lanka, which is down south and so on. So I would say, I would imagine that in different parts of the subcontinent, people would have eaten different kinds of food. What do we have any idea for sure what they used to eat? I am not sure because there is no textual evidence or record left today, surviving today, that uh, maybe provides uh, maybe a cookbook from the time. What recipes did Indians have? We don't have any of that. So we can only speculate. Right? But I would imagine Indians of, of that time would have eaten pretty much what Indians eat today, apart from all the foreign influences that, that have crept in, yes. So that's what I could say. That's what I would be able to tell you. Now, let's see if do we have other questions that are more interesting. Aha! Now, World War Three. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's fun to think of wars, but it's not fun. Wars are terrible. Um, wars are never good. Wars sometimes are necessary for nations to, uh, in order to achieve justice or whatever they seek. But the ones who suffer in wars are always the innocent men, women, and children, the innocent citizens. So uh, we should not uh, <laughs> be very excited about this prospect. Now, is World War Three on the in the offing? Is it on the cards? World War Three, I hope, is not on the cards. Uh, what could set off World War III? A World War III kind of situation is typically when you have a complete bifurcation of the global system and you have one massive power, one major power that is trying to replace another major power. That's typically the, the China-US paradigm. The US is still enormously more powerful than China. Their military uh, industrial complex, it, it's, it dwarfs anything China has. Right, the Chinese are trying to rise. They are trying to rise, but they are still no match for the U.S. They can't even take back China, uh, take back Taiwan as of 2022. Maybe in the next five to seven years, they may possibly feel that they are right. They are there and they can do it at that time. But right now, they are not even in a position to take back Taiwan. So, so right now, I don't see. I still don't see uh, World War Three happening anytime in the immediate future. There is the Ukraine. Conflagration that's happening. Yeah, the Ukraine war is happening. I don't know what's happening. You have all kinds of reports coming in. It's, in the Western media, it's typically that uh, Russia is losing, Ukraine is winning. That's what they've been saying since February. Well, let, let's uh, keep an eye on that. I typically uh, 
see the situation on a month to month basis because day to day if you look at it you, you will get misled by what the propaganda that's flowing around tells you so you have the ukraine war the ukraine conflict the west is not getting involved directly they are using proxies they are sending arms and ammunition to ukraine to fight the russians so it's essentially uh, that war is between russia and the west especially essentially russia and the us with the ukrainians fighting on behalf of the americans and, and the americans will fight russia to the last ukrainian so that war is going it looks like it's going to go on unless the, there is a ceasefire and something something like that which will happen only when russia has achieved whatever objectives it wanted to achieve so the russians will not stop un, un, until that um, those objectives are achieved so you have the ukraine flashpoint and apart from that there is no other hot war happening and as long as nobody makes any silly silly moves world war 3 will most likely not happen we have to understand what the red lines are what are china's red lines what are russia's red lines what are america's red lines what are india's red lines and so on once you understand that you can understand what can trigger a war so what are china's red lines uh, i think too much of you us encroachment in various uh parts territorial regions that the chinese see as their own especially taiwan if there are too many provocations vis-a-vis taiwan there could be something happening there uh japan and china also have a dispute there are problems there so there are many flashpoints geopolitical flashpoints across the world which we can see on the map but as of now i do not see world war 3 starting off anytime soon and i hope it never happens wars will happen wars are uh, something that have always happened it's it's how things are done that's how we humans roll we are a species of warriors we 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 resolve our differences in the long run with through wars only so wars will come and go but hopefully nothing major and so yeah as of now i don't see world war 3 erupting anytime soon right uh what else do we have <laughs> asmodeus says if shri jinping gets removed will there be a change in approach towards india if relations between india and china improve do both together have the potential to undermine us in the world so there is always this hope that i see from indians of uh, some kind of india china rapprochement and india china will form an alliance and work against the west i don't see that happening see if you look, see it's not about mr xi jinping or anybody else it's about the overall policy of the chinese communist party from 90 from 1949 or whenever it was that they came to power until 2022 what has the official policy of the chinese communist party been not through words but what are the what have their actions been like they have always been hostile towards india whether it was the time during the time of mao zedong and during the ta- time when shou uh, enlai shou enlai was the uh, foreign minister or whatever or whatever he was or later during the time of deng xiaoping when again there was a small border war between india and china 1987 yeah which nobody remembers then there were two wars earlier 1962 which india lost 1967 that india won and even in the 2000s the chinese started making claims on arunachal pradesh so it's not about a particular individual it's about the chinese communist party and how they see india the chinese communist party sees india as a potential long term threat if india rises they will feel they feel that it will be a big threat towards china because china holds so many territories that don't belong to them they hold tibet tibet has always been part of the indosphere 
Tibet was India's part of India's extended sphere of influence and India's extended extended cultural sphere. They hold that, and as long as the Chinese hold Tibet, India and China are always going to have friction and tensions, which may lead to wars. So the key to the issue is Tibet. It's not the demarcation of the India-China border, which of course the Chinese again they don't want even that to happen. So if India rises, it's going to be a threat to China. They know it, and I think you also know it. If India becomes a ten trillion dollar economy with a massive military, do you not think India would want to take back Tibet, at least free Tibet from China? Of course, it is. That is the solution to all the problems. So, no matter who comes to power, let's say Mr. Xi Jinping gets removed and some other person comes to power, it will make no difference in China's approach towards India. China will always be an adversary to India, as long as they hold territory that doesn't belong to them, that has historically never been theirs, Tibet. As long as that happens, China and India are going to have this adversarial enemy relationship. Relations between India and China can improve only if India rises, right? So, paradoxically, the key to good relations, reasonably good relations, is India's rise. As long as India is a middle power, a small power, like a three point six trillion dollar economy, which is not small, but it's not big either. India is a middle power right now. India is a future great power. Everyone now recognizes this, right? So the Chinese don't want that future future to ever happen. They don't want India to become a great power. But if India does become a great power, then it will become too strong for the Chinese to ever think about attacking. And then they will be able. They will be forced to make certain compromises, and there will be a forced. Peace of sorts. So though that is not good relations, that is China recognizing the fact that they cannot now afford to antagonize India too much, and then there will be a cold peace kind of thing. It will never be warm relations like we had for two thousand years, right? China is two thousand, three thousand years old, whatever. So we had good relations between India and China for two thousand years. Ever since the the, the the Chinese discovered Indian culture through the works of um, first the Mauryan Empire, then the Kushan Empire under Kanishka the Great and so on. So India and China always had great relations, but now that they have captured Tibet that doesn't belong to them, they now covet more territory. You know, they want to keep on nibbling away at Indian territory and keep India off balance, keep India always discomfited. That is the policy. That's their official line or unofficial line, unstated line. That's what they have always done: the salami slicing and nibbling away at small pieces of territory. They keep doing that, and they don't want to. Uh, demarcate the border for that reason so the only solution is for india to rise to a minimum 10 trillion dollar economy in the next 10 15 years the chinese will do their best not not to let that happen but india has to make that happen then there will be a cold peace between india and china the chinese will see india as, a, as an even bigger threat but they will not able to do be to do do anything about that the way they are able to do right now to some extent so that's what's happening so relations between india and china will not improve as long as the chinese communist party holds tibet the solution to the entire problem is tibet india has to somehow one way or the other engineer the liberation of tibet and the complete uh, deletion of any chinese influence there and that's going to take some taking Takes some doing, yeah. So, uh, so uh, is there a possibility of an India-China alliance? No, not as long as the Chinese Communist Party holds Tibet, and mostly, most likely, not as whole long as the Chinese Communist Party remains in power. So, India and China are not going to work together. They are always going to have an adversarial relationship. There could be sometimes in the future, possibly some kind of uh, some kind of. Uh, 
agreement of convenience or whatever, but that is not going to last long. This, exactly the same way Russia and China right now are working together, but they are long-term enemies. Russia and China are long-term enemies. They are not going to be in, on good terms in the long-term future. Maybe 10 years, 20 years, and then the old rivalries and issues will re-emerge. Right? So similarly, in the future, there could be some temporary uh, understanding between India and China, but it's not going to be a long-term thing. Yeah. So India essentially doesn't have any real allies. Whatever relationship India has with Russia is a relationship of good understanding, of warmth. There have been historically good ties. And Russia obviously would like to see India rise vis-a-vis China. So that's where we are today. And if you want to undermine the US, I don't want to undermine anybody. I just want India to rise. That's all. It doesn't have to be at somebody else's expense. We can have a multipolar world for now, for, for some time, and then we'll see. All right. Okay, let's uh, see then see some other comments. What do we have? Mm. Opinion on Bollywood planning a movie on the Mahabharat. Uh, I don't have a good feeling about it. Yeah. Bollywood planning anything on Indian culture is going to distort Indian culture. I wonder who the old actors they will... See, they, they only have a few actors and actresses that they typically employ for any major role. So it's going to be some 60-year-old actor who's going to play the role of the young Lord Rama and the young Lord Lakshman, Lakshman and Bharat and so on. And, you know, the casting will be, as far as I see from their track record, I can say that the casting will be bad and they will distort Indian history and culture. So if the movie is made or whatever, I am certainly not going to go and watch it. I'm not going to waste my time and money. Yeah. I would really like to see a long series about the Ramayana and the Mahabharat being made. The kind of production that you have in the Game of Thrones or the House of the Dragon, really well made. 10 episodes per season, maybe three seasons, four seasons, you know? So 30, 40 episodes, maybe 50 episodes, one hour long. That would do justice to something as complicated and as as as, as culturally deep and historically vast as the Ramayana or the Mahabharat. Or you could do it uh, through animation. The Japanese, I believe, had done a very good animation like 20, 30 years ago about either the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. Maybe the Ramayana. I would like to see this done, but it should do justice to the events that happened, not some stupid Bollywoodized version that I certainly will not watch. So that's my opinion about this. It's not some great news or anything. I'm certainly not watching. Uh, most likely they will put some, I don't know who they'll put in the titular rules, but yeah, not interesting. Not interested. All right. Why is the US at war with Russia when it is clear that China is the greatest threat enemy right now? No, Russia is, you don't understand how, see, yeah, China is uh, economically the biggest threat right now to the US. The, the Chinese seek to undermine the so-called WIMS-based global order that the Americans have created and the entire economic framework that they've created. They seek to seek to bifurcate the system, the global system. So a bunch of countries on China's side, a bunch of countries on the US side, and then let's see who wins, that sort of thing. The Chinese seek to do that. But understand what Russia is. Russia is at number 10 in the top 10 economies, maybe number 11. But if you look at the real the real GDP, the Russians are not at number two or number three. 
if you look at the factors in the GDP that really matter, whether it comes to agricultural output or, or mineral output or energy output or steel output, if you consider only these core factors in a nation's GDP, then Russia is at number two or number three. All the other factors like goods and services and all that stuff, that 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 is fluff. You know, that's how you inflate a GDP. So the real core components of, of, of what goes into calculating a GDP, if you only consider that, Russia is at number two or number three. That's why they are able to withstand all the sanctions that the US is throwing at them. It makes no difference to them. They are self-sufficient in energy. Nobody can stop them from... Uh, uh, from they have more than sufficient reserves of gas and coal and hydrocarbons and oil. They don't need it from anybody else. Uh, again, they have all the industries. They They make many they have steel ore steel mines coal mines and they have enormous amounts of agricultural land so all the fundamentals are covered right there so they are completely self-sufficient they are an autarky completely self-sufficient uh nation and they are a very strong economy secondly secondly they have the world's largest nuclear arsenal the Russians have a bigger nuclear arsenal than the Americans. And it's, it's, the Chinese don't even figure in this in this comparison. So the, the Russians are possibly the greatest military power. Of course, they don't have the kind of network of global network of military bases like the Americans have in Japan, in Germany, all across Europe, in Turkey, in Belgium, in, in the Netherlands, in Italy, in the Indian Ocean region, you know, Diego Garcia in Australia. Australia is essentially owned by the US. It's like a US corporation and so on. The Americans have a network of bases everywhere, military bases, permanent bases, more or less. The Russians don't have that. But they have a very strong military. They have the means to deploy weapons and warheads anywhere they want. So Russia is actually, in some ways, a bigger threat than China, right? And the Americans tried to destroy Russia in the in the 1990s via Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin essentially did his best to des to deliberately and systematically and step by step destroy Russia's economy. He succeeded to a large extent, but then something inconvenient happened. Vladimir, Vladimir Putin came to power and he rebuilt the economy over a period of about 10-15 years. And then the military again became, became powerful because the economy stopped crumbling. And today Russia is again a force to be reckoned with. It's no longer a global superpower like it was 30-40 years ago, but it's still one of the major powers and it's a huge threat to the US. So you got to understand this to 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 understand why the U.S. still is trying their best to undermine the Russians in a variety of ways. Okay. Rantman says, can anyone conduct an Ashwamedha Yagna or do you have to be a king to do one? I do want to claim control of the universe, just a power-hungry medical student here. Ashwamedha Yagna. So what was the Ashwamedha Yagna? An Ashwamedha Yagna was typically, typically done by kings. Okay, So what the king would do is that king would uh, perform a ritual, you know, according to the proper Vedic traditions, in which a horse would be set free to roam and wander wherever he wanted. And it was, I think the time period was one year. So the horse would wander and roam anywhere he wanted for one year. And any king or uh, other territory that the horse wandered into, that local king would have two choices. Either resist the 
and, and the horse wherever he wanders would be accompanied by soldiers by essentially battalions and detachment of an army so if the horse wandered into a neighbor's territory then the neighboring king would have two choices either resist the the incursion of the of the horse and the army through warfare or accept the superiority of the king who is conducting the ashwamedha yagna so either war or you become a vassal that's that was that were the two options and and this happened over a period of one year and this is typically how ancient kings of india expanded their territories or tried to expand the territory now understand this clearly what sort of king would conduct what even dare to conduct an ashwamedha yagna only an extremely powerful king with the resources at his disposal would dare to conduct an ashwamedha yagna let's say i uh, let's say i am a king and i have 2000 soldiers and i have a small kingdom and i decide that i'm going to conduct the ashwamedha yagna my horse goes into the neighboring king's territory who's got 20000 soldiers in a much more territory what's going to happen i'm going to be defeated and i'm going to lose even my territory so typically ashwamedha yagnas were only conducted by very powerful kings other kings would not even dare to think about it it's only really powerful kings who would conduct this now if you are a medical student and if you want to do this how many soldiers do you have at your disposal who will obey you without question at a second's notice you have to take these factors into consideration do you have a horse are you planning to buy a horse and uh, if you let your horse loose what are the authorities the government of india going to do about it think about these things right it's 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 not that simple it's not just something that you just do on a whim it has to be thought about very clearly and typically what a king would do is that maybe he would prod the horse or or induce the horse through suggestion or whatever to go in certain directions and in certain king's territories and so on so this is something that very few kings would dare to do only those who were genuinely powerful and they knew that nobody could stop them only they would do such things so we have examples of various vedic uh, kings who have done this during the ramayana mahabharat times and you also have uh, pushyamitra shunga who revived the ashwamedha yagna tradition and then you also have various gupta emperors who did ashwamedha yagna especially chandragupta the first i believe and and others as well so only very powerful emperors not just kings but emperors dare to do it so a power hungry medical student it's okay to be power hungry but you need to be practical as well you need to first build an army and your army needs to have the resources you know they need to have the money to to feed them to give them the weapons ammunition then you need to build logistical routes to to support and supply the army when it is far away from your home base when your horses are wandering around and then you need to be able to ensure that you will not be defeated by whoever is in power wherever your horse goes so in the indian subcontinent the indian government is in power and you will not be allowed to indulge in any such misadventure yeah you <laughs> it won't end well for you you can send your horse into pakistan and and see what happens there but then are you in a position to defeat the pakistani army who is not a small they don't have a small force they are pretty well equipped especially when it comes to an army led by a horse so think about these things and only when you know for sure that you have, you will be able to succeed to a certain extent only then you think of attempting an ashwamedha yagna all right Keshav says about Colombia and Pablo Escobar, Plata or Plomo, right? 
Pablo Escobar, Senor Pablo Escobar. So Pablo Escobar was, well, he was not the greatest drug runner and drug smuggler in history, but maybe number two. The greatest drug smuggler in history was uh, Queen Victoria, Empress of India. Uh, she did drug running on a scale that Pablo Esco- that makes Pablo Escobar look like a little mosquito. Anyhow, Pablo Escobar was, uh, he had this big cartel in Colombia. Uh, he was initially a smuggler of various electronics and small time things, but then he discovered cocaine. I think it was cocaine, maybe some other drugs as well. And then what he started doing is he started growing cocaine. He he employed lots of people. It was a very well planned business business operation. You know, it was a, it's it was like it started as a startup, but then it became really big. It became a major corporation, and he would have lots of people under his employ. People would grow uh, the the plant which gives uh, gives you cocaine. I believe coca plant. Yeah. Then he would have uh, engineers, chemical engineers, etc., who would uh, refine the thing and uh, distill the cocaine out of the, the the pure cocaine then he would have the entire logistical supply chains you know he would have uh, fleets of trucks he would have uh, fleets of uh, even aircraft etc and he had supply routes going all the way into the us into miami and other places and at one point in time he was even elected to the parliament or whatever it is of colombia yeah and he had ambitions of uh, becoming the president of Colombia. And he also did uh, social welfare work and he was a you know social servant kind of thing, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So eventually, eventually he became too big and the Americans got involved. It is eventually the Americans that took him out. Yeah, slowly his entire downfall happened. His uh, operations were curtailed. The Colombians with American support were able to slowly crack down on various pieces of the corporation on various supply chains and lots of seizures happened and so on and so forth. It's a it's an interesting story. You know, you can learn a lot about how to start a business or operate a business by looking at how the uh, cartels operate. You don't, I'm not suggesting you should do anything illegal at all, but you know, the way the organization is structured, how they do things. I think Patrick Beth David also takes a lot of uh, inspiration from the US mafia into how to run a business and so on. So yeah, that's a little bit about Colombia. Uh, Colombia is a, is a wonderful little nation in, in South America. If you want to see where it is, Colombia is here. The capital is Bogota and the cartel that Pablo Escobar ran was based in the city of Medellin, Medellin or whatever you call it. I'm not sure. There's, there was another cartel in Cali, the Cali cartel. And uh, they had, I think, boats or yachts that would uh, transport the material to the Cayman Islands, I believe. Was it Cayman Islands? This, there was an island called Norman's Cay somewhere here that was well, that was uh, one of the base of operations in the Bahamas, was it? I'm not sure where it was. He had a lieutenant called Carlos Leather who used to transport a lot of this produce into the US through planes. So these planes would fly very low and they would uh, come across Mexico and and they would enter the southern US and then they would offload their their cargo. And that's how it made its way to the US. And there's a lot of US government involvement in all this as well, because they also kind of, you know, uh, they supported certain cartels. I suppose they, it is said by some, commentators that maybe they still do. Even when it comes to Afghanistan, the Americans did support the growing of opium poppies and all that for uh, 
various operations and all. So yeah, it's it's a murky thing, and there's a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of stuff that you typically don't get to see. Right. Yeah, I already answered about Colombia, Pablo Escobar. What else do we have? Uh, let us see. Let us see. What are, what other questions do we have? Uh, Akshay says, why didn't Indians incorporate composite bows and other military inventions? What was it the reason why Prithviraj Chauhan lost the Battle of Tarain due to Ghazni's agile archers harassing Prithviraj Chauhan's army? The composite bow was most likely invented in India. The double curved bow that you see Lord Rama in depictions using, that's also invented in India. So what's a composite bow? It's a bow that's made out of not just one piece of wood, but multiple things, uh, multiple layers and elements of wood, maybe bone also, all uh, all engineered and fused together into a single instrument or, or weapon. That's the composite bow. It's not... A standard simple bow is, is made out of a single piece of wood that you bend through a, and, and you attach a rope or cord at the end and then you pull it and that, that sort of thing. Composite bows have better tensile strength and uh, they have multiple advantages over your standard uh, low-tech bow. I think it, the composite bow was used by the Mongols, by the Tatars and so on. And I think most likely it was invented in India thousands of years ago. So Indians did use it. Uh, I'm not sure what weapons Prithviraj Chauhan used in the Second Battle of Tarain. Why did Prithviraj Chauhan lose the Second Battle of Tarain? Because he won the First Battle of Tarain and allowed either through commission or omission, he allowed that guy, Ghazni, to escape. And because of this, Ghazni was able to, uh, Mahmud Ghazni was able to go back to his uh, base in Kandar, in, in Ghazni. And by that time, he had already tasted the style of warfare that, that the Rajputs had. He had been defeated once, uh, I think 20 or th about two decades before the first battle of Tarain. He had, he had been defeated somewhere in Punjab to a Rajput army. Later, he tried to uh, invade Western India and he suffered a catastrophic de defeat to the Solanki queen, uh, what's her name, Naiki Devi, in the battle of Kayadara in northern Gujarat, southern Rajasthan, near Abu, right? And then he again lost the first battle of Tarayan to Prithviraj Johan. So because of all these massive multiple defeats that he survived, he was able to understand the Rajput tactics, the Indian tactics of how the Indians fought. And eventually he was able to find the solution to, to how to deal with this. And that's why approximately one year after the first battle of Tarayan, he again invaded India. He again met Prithviraj Johan and this time he was able to defeat Prithviraj Johan, right? So that's the reason why Prithviraj Johan lost the first battle, or lost the second battle of Tarayan. He allowed this guy, the invader, to escape. We, we know what happened. Some people uh, say that the the Afghans, the invaders, had better horses, nimble horses, and horses that could run faster than the Rajput horses and all that. Whatever it is, once you defeat your enemy, you have to ensure that enemy is crushed forever. Maybe Prithviraj Johan was overconfident. He said, okay, they are, they've gone too far and let them go or whatever. That should not have happened. This guy, uh, the Ghazni, was, was, he was injured. 
he had to be rescued by one of his soldiers he was put on horseback and then they tried to escape and they were allowed to escape the point is simple as a ruler as a king you can't make excuses that you they were too fast or there was this happened or that happened you have to find a way of achieving your objectives and prithviraj chauhan did not achieve his objective maybe did not even think about it so that's why that's why prithviraj chauhan one year later lost the second battle of the rhine okay okay what else thousands of questions uh some questions people are asking repeatedly let's see something else let's see something else hmm what else willy bond 00007 says what are you going to do with your power is the question to build luxurious homes for yourself or to make everyone prosperous good question so think about the kings and queens the monarchs of europe they were very powerful in the past 500 years let's talk about the british empire right the kings and queens of england they became very powerful because of the conquests of uh, and colonization of many parts of the world including india including parts of africa they became very powerful they, they became very uh, wealthy as a result of all this what did they do they built palaces they built uh, luxurious homes for themselves what was the lot of the people that they ruled the people that they ruled were still in poverty europe has a feudal system please understand this only now it has changed europe has a feudal system you have the lords you have the nobility there are the people who serve the lords and then you have the peasants most people are peasants maybe 95% of the population used to be peasants the european aristocracy and royalty where did it originally derive its wealth and power from they derived it from agricultural lands so let's take england for instance the crown the king of england he was the owner of all the land in england people who had farms and all were actually allowed to use the farms and do all the agriculture on the land that was officially that of the king right so all the land belonged to the king and whatever agriculture was done the farmers the peasants had to pay massive taxes to these to the king to the to the to the crown and then you had the various nobles these are people who were allowed to have lands of their own but they were technically again owned by the king but they were able to they were allowed to have their own lands employ their own farmers there and collect taxes from the farmers and give some of the tax to the, to the king or queen and these nobles the so called nobles they were allowed to have their own armies personal armies that were that could be called upon by the king at any time when whenever it was required so they the, the deal was that they would uh, offer the arm, uh, army in the king's service anytime they wanted so that is the original power structure the peasants were the most oppressed they had almost no rights there was a lot of slavery for a very long time in the in the british islands and so on then they colonized the world and they enriched themselves and yet the peasants were always poor even a hundred years ago or 150 in the 19th century london was a terrible place london was a terrible place you have no idea about this people used to dump human waste on the streets in the mornings you know and the in the aristocracy and the nobility they used to travel in horse drawn carriages with the windows closed so that they don't have to get any, you know come in contact with the with the common people in the dirt and the filth yeah 
that's how it was so it so what are you going to do with your power is the question it all depends on the system it all depends on the king or queen when you have kings and queens who believe that the entire purpose of power and wealth is to serve themselves and not the people then you're going to have situations like the one that i just mentioned other on the other hand if you have a king or a queen that acts on the principle that the highest morality for them is to serve the nation and the people and to ensure that the nation and the people prosper in that case when the king becomes powerful when the nation becomes powerful it's going to benefit the entire society all the people of the nation so that's the kind of difference you see in egypt the kings and queens the pharaohs with their enormous uh, power and and wealth they constructed enormous pyramids i cannot even begin to imagine how much money and how much time and how much labor would have gone into constructing these massive pyramids did these pyramids benefit the people of egypt no it did nothing for the people of egypt when these kings and queens of europe they built these enormously luxurious palaces and castles did it benefit the people no but that is all seen as symbols of greatness in india we had the the construction of enormous regions of met- metropolitan regions a fully urbanized society a fully urban civilization 5000 years before today no palaces yeah so that's the difference so it all depends on what your values are what your cultural values and ethics are if you believe that the whole world is is a resource that is to be ex- that you can extract from then you're going to have a very uh this sort of european kind of abrahamic kind of mindset but if you believe that the highest duty and highest morality of a king is to serve the people and the nation and ensure the prosperity then you're going to have the whole nation prospering and i hope that answers the question all right all right avirup okil says what is the minimum wavelength that a photon can have uh the more energetic a photon the shorter its wavelength and the less energetic a photon the longer its wavelength that's how it is frequency and wavelength are are reciprocals of each other so when you have gamma rays the most energetic photons you have extremely short wavelengths when you have x rays which are also ionizing radiation you have short wavelengths then uh, visible light has longer wavelengths infrared light has even longer wavelengths and so on and so forth so what is the minimum wavelength a photon can have i it would be the wavelength of the most energetic gamma rays so yeah that's how I would, i would say and what's the maximum wavelength the photon could have the maximum wavelength the photon could have is infinity when it is redshifted out of existence so i don't know exactly what is the typical wavelength of a gamma ray but whatever it is divided by 100 and that's possibly the most energetic gamma ray you can have so the most energetic photons are those that are born in the cores of stars and the ones that were born in the very early universe when the universe was still dark so one of the interesting things here to you people let me ask you a question let me ask you a question if you were to if i could give you a, a suit a space suit that you can wear and it will allow you to go right inside a star without getting burned then what do you think you will see if you go right to the inside of a star you have a star 
and you you're able to go all the way inside a star to its very core what do you think you will see i i imagine most people think that uh inside a star it's just brightness right bright light but that's not the case inside a star it's dark it's completely dark inside a star you go to the core of the sun you will not be able to see anything it's just blackness darkness it's only outside that you will see uh in the atmosphere of the, of the sun and outside that you see light and the the photos that are born inside the core of, of the sun they typically take approximately a million years to be able to escape the sun so the sun is so dense inside that you have the situation all right uh let's see some other question uh you see i don't i don't memorize the wavelengths and all these things you know so i can yeah anyway what what other questions do we have i answered this question just some time ago about an hour ago we don't know what's happening there we don't know what's happening in china maybe there's a coup maybe some, something else happening but something clearly unusual is happening in china okay vanos says why doesn't the government fix our broken education system wouldn't a good education system and infrastructure be good for our country and therefore good for india's development i have been saying this for uh, for the longest time i have two or three episodes only about education i don't know what is it episode 30 31 somewhere around there yeah the government needs to fix the education system the education system is the root of all india's problems actually all the mental colonization all the um all the problems that you have all the all the false beliefs the entire attitude of trying to memorize things without understanding them the inferiority complex it all comes from india's education system so why doesn't the government fix it because the education system is a goddamn cartel you know it it, it is something that is the education system it promotes mediocrity it does two things first of all it seeks out identifies and destroys talent think about ramanujan how incredibly talented he was but the education system nearly destroyed him shrinivas ramanujan and so it identifies seeks out and destroys talent and secondly it promotes mediocrity in the education system what kind of professors are promoted those who are great at doing politics not those who are great at doing research or who are very knowledgeable it's always a political game so the most political and most mediocre rise to the very top that's typically what you see in the indian education system so you have a whole network of colleges and universities all of whom are ruled by mediocrities not all maybe 99% maybe 98% some of the academics and professors etc would be good for sure maybe 1% maybe 2% are great but 95 98% of them are mediocre yeah so you have a whole network the entire system hundreds of universities thousands of colleges all ruled with by mediocrity right you try to reform that don't you think there will be resistance to that the entire system will rebel against you right and and we know what what's happening even the, in the iits you have these humanities departments that are populated by anti india academics and so on so the education system is a leftover of the 19th century colonial system today they will teach you computer science and they will teach you they will offer you mbas but the system is the same 
the system is still the same. It's it's run the same way as it was in the 19th century. You know, long examinations in which you have to write essay essay length answers. You have to memorize things. You don't you don't learn anything at all, and so on. The only skill you acquire is is how to pass exams. So this is a system. It's it's like the bureaucracy. Once in the, if you have a job as a professor or a lecturer or whatever in a reader in a government college or university, you have a job for life, just like the IAS. That's how it is. And you try to reform that, they're going to resist. You try to reform the IAS, they, they will all go on strike. The nation will be paralyzed. Similarly, you try to reform the education system, the entire system will, will resist you. And there's going to be political outcomes of that. Because this system was created by the previous political regime. They benefited from that. So that's why it's so difficult for the government to do this. There are, it, It's going to invite a huge amount of resistance. The media will get involved. They will say that the government is going all fascist. They are, they are trying to destroy what's good and so on. And, and all of you will believe this. All of you will believe what the media says, right? So that's why no matter, whenever the government has tried to implement major reforms, there has been a massive backlash from political parties, from the media. And all of you also, most of you believe that. That the government is doing something wrong, whether it's the farm laws, whether it's Agnipath, and I know I'm gonna see comments now saying that I'm wrong. So that's the problem. Whenever you try to implement some good, really good major reforms, there is this massive backlash, which is orchestrated by political parties, many of which are funded by abroad, most likely, not all, many, and the media, which again is funded by various political parties and also by other countries. So anytime you try to take the, India, the nation in the right direction, there is a major backlash. There will be protests on the streets. All the colleges and the universities will have protests yeah, by paid students or maybe not paid, paid students. Maybe they truly believe it. And so the government doesn't want to take this up right now. There are bigger problems to solve. Those will be solved first. Then these issues will be taken care of when, when the government feels the time is right. The real problem is the people of India who are so easily misled by political parties and by the media. The real problem is that. And that's why the government doesn't want to take up such such difficult tasks right now. It makes sense, actually. Here you are. Here you are. Anyway, that's fine. Okay, let's take some other questions. <laughs> AK the guy says, did the Neanderthals have a tail? And did they and Homo sapiens coexist like a society or not? Uh, so the Neanderthals did not have tails. The Neanderthals were a separate subspecies of humans, um, closely related to Homo sapiens. And they seem to have appeared in Eurasia at least 600,000 or so years before today. Homo sapiens, our ancestors, they came into uh, Asia about 85 or 90,000 years before today. And we are the, the descendants of that out of Africa migration. The Neanderthals were in Eurasia about half a million years before that. Roughly, roughly, give or take. They were very, very closely related to us. They did not have tails. They had a slightly different physique. You know, they, 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 were more heavy, heavily built, larger bones, maybe more muscular. Yeah. And did they and Homo sapiens coexist as a society or not? Well, most non-African humans have 
a certain amount of Neanderthal origin DNA, which means they did not simply coexist, they interbred and they produced offspring together. So a Neanderthal mother or father and a Homo sapiens mother or father would procreate together and produce an offspring that was half Homo sapiens, half Neanderthal. Yeah. So the spe- typically when you have two distinct species, let's say uh, chimpanzees and gorillas, they cannot produce offspring together because they are, they, there is too much genetic difference between them. Whether it is a tiger and a lion, I think they can produce offspring, but the offspring are typically infertile or whatever. So the Neanderthals and the humans were so genetically close together, so genetically alike, that they did interbreed, they did produce offspring together. And most non-African humans have a little bit of Neanderthal ancestry, around 4 to 6%, maybe 4 to 8%, depending on where, you, where you're looking. But from what I understand, most Indians don't have any Neanderthal ancestry. Anyway, that's a whole different story. So we don't know if the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens coexisted as a society, but they did certainly meet and they did certainly produce offspring together. And we still see that in most non-African uh, people alive today and some of those neanderthal genes give us protection give these people protection against certain diseases and all that so it's it's something that's that's been beneficial to humans to homo sapiens all right where are we shantanu says why are we as indians lagging behind as far as technology is concerned was ancient bharat ahead in technology than the west at that time, ancient Bharat was always technologically the most advanced civilization. Always. Even in the second millennium AD, India was still in many ways more advanced. India was the first completely advanced civilization, completely fully industrialized civilization. India was. The British destroyed India's industries because they wanted to dump their cheaply manufactured garbage into India and make Indians pay for that. There was one of the ways in which they extracted wealth out of India by dumping their cheap mass-produced textiles and other things into India so that Indians would buy them, Indians would be forced to buy them and they would sell them at very high prices and that's one of the easy ways of extracting incredible amounts of wealth out of India. To do that, they had to destroy India's indigenous industries. And they, they did that in a variety of ways. So India was always technologically the most advanced civilization. India had the greatest shipbuilding industry in the world. India produced the best steel in the world and so many other things. Right? So why is India lagging behind today? Because we are continuing the system that the colonizers created. The Indian system is a continuation of the colonial system. Nothing has changed after 1947. How do you become a technologically advanced nation? First of all, you need to have a good education system, a purely meritocratic education system. Secondly, you need to eliminate corruption so that the companies and the industries and the startups thrive. Thirdly, you need to make the system uh, pro-industry. It should be really, really easy to start a business and conduct business in India. Today, it's not that way. There's so much red tape in this. There's been lots of reforms in the past seven, eight years, and yet we are still not where we should be. It should be really easy to start a business. Why does it even today take like seven days, 10 days, 15 days? I don't know how long it takes to even register a business. There are certain countries in which you can do it within one day. In India, it's a whole long procedure. You have to fill up so many forms and submit it here and submit it there. And you need to hire a CA and God knows what, all kinds of things, right? 
it's a it's it's very involved it's really hard to start a business and then there is so much compliance and all that stuff so it's these are the problems these are the problems and then when you have a business or an industry in a certain city you are at the mercy of the local politicians so there are all these issues it's the internal problems that are that are creating that are creating the, the that are the cause of india lagging behind in technology today you have the government that is involved in many of the te- technological advancements we 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 have isro which is a government run organization isro is doing reasonably well we have drdo which is a government run run organization drdo is drdo is doing okay we have hal hindustan aeronautics limited all that all these are government run organizations drdo is not well run it has 5000 scientists and 25000 non scientists who are employees why does it have 25000 non scientists all the salary all the money is going into that into into all the money that is in on the budget of drdo for, for one year a significant portion of that is going into the salaries of the non scientific staff why do you need even one non scientific person in drdo so that's how badly mismanaged these things are and why can't we have why can't we allow private players the opportunity to become the next drdo or isro or hl or whatever so there are so many reforms that need to be done there is a long way to go but hopefully we are going in the right direction this government clearly wants to make it happen so these are the reasons why india thus far has been lagging behind in technology and hopefully it will not remain this way for too long madara uchiha says even though aryan invasion migration tourism picnic theory has been proved wrong why do we still divide our languages into aryan and dravidian that's what the system does that's what the education system does that's what academia does i don't do it the languages have been artificially divided by colonizers into these two fake artificial categories aryan and dravidian let's take two languages uh, marathi and kannada Marathi is classified as an Aryan language. Kannada is classified as a Dravidian language, right? So Marathi is part of the Indo-European language family and Kannada is part of the Dravidian language family. So if you take Marathi and a random other Indo-European language, let's say German. If you speak Marathi and you hear somebody speak German, how much do you understand? 0%. if you speak marathi and you hear somebody speaking kannada you will understand 30 40% of what they are saying do you get that and yet marathi is part of a separate language family and kannada is separate this is nonsense this is absolute nonsense no matter which so called dravidian language you take it is way closer to any of the so called indo aryan languages than to any other indo european language which is from outside of india even the indo iranian languages which are a larger subset of the indo-aryan languages they are much closer to any of the so-called dravidian languages than to the european languages so this entire classification scheme is completely wrong it doesn't make any sense and yet our academics faithfully like good colonial slaves keep on parroting the good old 19th century academic parad- colonial paradigm so i have never said that we have aryan and dravidian languages i said that we have to revisit this entire thing we have to revisit india's linguistics a priori from scratch we need to uh we need to revisit this entire thing properly 
and and we need to create a new group of linguists linguistics researchers who are not influenced by this nonsense by the colonial nonsense so it needs to happen the government needs to create a new institute of linguistics or institutes of linguistics where young researchers in their early 20s who have not been you know contaminated by the by the slave mindedness they will start looking at this from scratch and create a proper classification scheme that makes sense logically yeah so yeah that again is something that needs to be done and it's something that will hope happen someday hopefully i hope in the future yes this is the most popular question for today what's happening in china right now any speculations we don't know we don't know what's happening in china something clearly is wrong something very unusual is happening in china the skies over beijing are clear not a single plane is taking off or landing that never happens beijing is one of the most one of the busiest airports in the entire world not only in china in the entire world and thousands of flights have been cancelled and thousands of trains have also been cancelled something very strange is happening mr xi jinping is not visible he is not to be seen in public he rushed back to china after the sco summit where he met mr putin where he stood next to mr modi he rushed back to china for some reason after that he has not been seen in public so something is going something is going on we don't know what it is i think time will tell us maybe i will revisit revisit this in tomorrow's session if we have some more clarity clarity on what's happening how to live a life like mikhail kalashnikov in india i don't know i don't know much about mikhail kalashnikov the name obviously rings a bell ding 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 so mikhail kalashnikov was an engineer he was an inventor he invented a certain weapon in 1947 which was called the kalashnikov 47 otomat kalashnikov 47 ak47 and then a new version of that came out in 56 Otomat Kalashnikov 56 AK 56 and today you have newer versions of the Kalashnikov uh, series family of rifles extremely good rifle works in almost any conditions very reliable very easy to use <coughs> and that's why it's a favorite of armed forces worldwide even terrorists and various insurgents and freedom fighters worldwide yeah that's how it is so yeah um, that's what i can tell you about mikhail kalashnikov and his invention i don't know what kind of life he lived so i would not be able to answer that but yeah that's what mr kalashnikov is famous for all right let's okay <laughs> i get this uh aditya says fox news anchor tucker carlson tried to justify british colonization of india that india became civilized after the colonial rule and the west ignored this statement completely my thoughts i am not surprised at all so first the first thing is this this guy tucker carlson he's one of the prominent right wing voices in the us media right now the us media is mostly left wing right is all demonized right maga the the trump folks and all that the republicans so tucker carlson is one of the prominent so supposedly right wing voices in the us and when this old lady died what's her name elderly lady uh, the queen the queen of england what's her name elizabeth so when she died he uh, praised her to the high heavens he eulogized her and he then made the statement that uh, british colonization was good for india without british colonization we would not have civilization and architecture and what not 
So what are my thoughts about this? I'm not surprised. First of all, many Indians, especially the so-called right-wing Indians, they try to make common cause with the right-wing in the US and in, and in Europe. Please understand this. They are just as Indophobic as anybody else. They are just as white supremacists as, as anybody else. These days, it is not it is not fashionable to espouse white supremacism and, and Western supremacy in the US, especially because of the kind of, you know, the political climate. But below the surface that sentiment is very much there so tucker carlson and these days it is not advisable at all to make any statements against certain religions in the west you would, you would be called this phobic or that phobic yeah and these days it is no longer fashionable to denigrate the people of african origin right so then who's left india so it's all it's perfectly fine to be hindu phobic or indophobic or try to portray india as a backward country or whatever and, and nobody is going to say anything about it had he said the same thing about let's say saudi arabia or had he said the same thing about some african country there would have been a ton of repercussions for tucker carlson but as long as he does it for about india it's perfectly fine so uh, my thoughts is that I am not surprised at all and he is completely wrong. India was a civilization when the West, <laughs> well, I don't want to go that far, but yeah, when they were very primitive. Yeah, India is the oldest known civilization on the planet, at least 10,000 years old. India was technologically and civilizationally incredibly highly developed even 5,000 years before today. The largest completely urbanized, fully industrialized civilization of the ancient world about 5,000 years before today, the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian history, which was the territorial extent was greater than Egypt and Mesopotamia put together. It was that big. It was completely urbanized, completely all metropolitan areas, very well-planned cities, extremely high technology, great hydro engineering, and so on. So I don't think there's anything we need to prove. Our architecture is, it surpasses anything the West can produce. It's been doing that for thousands of years. I'm not talking about the monument of the of the invaders, which is the Taj Mahal. I'm talking about all the other monumental architecture we have had, which has been built for public use in India. All the great temples, which also served as educational institutions and so much more, right? So yeah, there's nothing more we can, we need to say about this. Right. Okay. Kushagra says, what if what if Pakistan bang corridor emerged in India? Oh, Pakistan Bangladesh corridor. I think that's what Mr. Gandhi wanted, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. He wanted to allow the Pakistanis to create a land corridor, land bridge between East Pakistan and West Pakistan through through India. The Pakistanis had made this demand that we want a land corridor. And I think Mr. Gandhi was in favor of that. So imagine if that had been allowed and they would have had access, I mean, they would have had sovereignty to Indian territory. And then that would have, well, obviously not been good for India. I mean, I'm glad that better sense prevailed and Mr. Gandhi was not able to have his way, which was Pakistan's way. So had a Pakistan-Bangladesh corridor emerged in India, it would... It would uh, not have been good for India. It would have given Pakistan an advantage over India. And of course, it is something that is com completely in, under India's control, obviously. So was there a war or something which did happen eventually? We would have been able to cut it off. But anyway, it was not a good idea. It was a ridiculous idea. And it's strange that Mr. Gandhi, the great, great Indian Mahatma, supported that. 
very strange very strange very strange uh yes yes it would have been a total disaster total okay what else do we have all kinds of questions one <laughs> spots says could you tell us about the chavda dynasty well it's one of the older and obscure more obscure dynasties in india there are lots of dynasties that uh, no one uh, writes about or speaks about the history textbooks history textbooks have forgotten so this is a dynasty that uh, existed in western india in gujarat northern gujarat western gujarat in the 7th 8th centuries the oldest king of this dynasty was jayashekhar chavda who lost uh, his kingdom to an invasion from somewhere then his son his wife escaped to the forests when this invasion happened and she gave birth to a son about 6 months after his father died this son was raised in the forest that's why he was called vanraj he eventually regained his father's kingdom and he was the one of the great kings of gujarat and it is during the rule of vanraj chaura that in that gujarat acquired a separate uh, a socio cultural identity it emerged as a separate culture of its own associations you know that sort of thing a separate cultural identity and the language also started changing and this dynasty last, lasted until the 900s 942 ad or so and the last king was childless and he was not a very strong king and his nephew his sister's son uh usurped the throne and started in a new dynasty which is which was called the solanki dynasty so that is in brief about the chavda dynasty um it was a reasonably strong dynasty at some point in time and uh, the oldest uh, ruler of this dynasty that we can that seems to be on the record is a ruler called ruler called vyagramuk chavda who ruled in bhinmal in rajasthan and he seems to be ha- to have been a hunnic king he that dynasty at the time was called the shri chapa dynasty later it was called the chavda dynasty so this king seems to have been a hunnic king who had taken the name of of this dynasty shri chapa dynasty and he was a great king he was the patron of the great uh, scientist brahmagupta so yeah we don't know the origins the deeper origins of this dynasty they seem to be linked to the skythian king nahapana perhaps so there isn't sufficient evidence to either confirm or deny that so it's it's one of the more obscure parts of indian history but uh, it was significant for some time and it, it is during the reign of this dynasty that gujarat emerged as a separate uh, socio cultural entity yeah okay what else what else what else what else uh harsh kumar says why are most people right handed while no other animals prefer a specific arm i don't have the answer to this i believe polar bears are left handed most polar bears seem to be exclusively left handed humans most of us are right handed some of us left handed i don't know about other species cats seem to be equally adept with both arms so yeah i i'm not quite sure i think there must be some answer but i have not been able to find it this far so maybe i will revisit this but it's a very interesting question why did we evolve this way why we have two hands so shouldn't we shouldn't we be able to use both hands equally well and in some cases people also have a preferred ear and a preferred eye also like when you have to cover one eye for shooting some people tend to only cover one eye not, not both eyes like you know they prefer one eye over the other and one ear over, over the other i'm not sure if it's all, it's always the right eye the right ear like the right hand but interesting question and 
and uh, yeah let let me try and find out why it is so so maybe in a future episode i will look into that um vanos is left handed outstanding sir outstanding i think left handers have a certain advantage over right handers because the whole world is made for right handers so if you are left handed uh it gives you some advantage in sports and things like that you know opposable thumbs yeah that could be a reason but we have two opposable thumbs so why can't we use both equally well cats obviously don't have opposable thumbs bears don't have opposable thumbs but bears seem to be mostly left handed what about our cousins the chimpanzees and and gorillas do they also have this preference for a certain hand interesting questions and uh, i don't have the answers right now but i will certainly look into this all right let's see some other questions rishab says why is the pashtun language classified as part of the iranian language family system when even none of the words are mutually intelligible to the persian language i think if indians pay attention like close attention to somebody speaking pashto we can actually make out some of what they are saying their pashto should be an indo aryan language actually but yeah the great academicians and linguists have placed pashto in the iranian language family indo iranian language family or iranian language so today if you talk to people of pashtun origin they'll say no no we are persians our language is an iranian language and blah 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 and yet uh, it's it's there's not much of com- much in common see there is going to be something in common between pashto and iranian and, and persian just like there is a lot in common between let's say hindi and persian or punjabi and persian or rajasthani and persian the languages are actually quite close to quite similar the first time you hear the persian language it it will sound like a foreign alien language but if you get used to it if you if you listen closely it, it starts making a bit of sense to you persians who come to, come to live in india or study in india they pick up hindi very very quickly and they become fluent just like a local almost like a local in hindi that's how easy it is for them to learn hindi because the languages are very close i think the pashto language should is actually closer to the indo-aryan languages so called indo-aryan languages then to the iranian languages but linguists have decided to put that in that in, put pashto in that category so yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense to me we know that gandhar was part of ancient india and pashto is a language that has emerged out of gandhar right the pashtun people are the true in inha- the original inhabitants the original natives of gandhar descendants of the of the prithu people and the pakhta people those rigvedic clans um and genetically also studies have shown that Pash- the pashtun people are essentially essentially an extension of the north indian population so yeah it doesn't make sense to for for the pashtun pashto language to be part of the iranian language family but that's where it is right now so that's why i say that we need to revisit the entire categorization and classification of indian or subcontinental languages and we need to revisit this and do this a priori from from scratch all right uh is there any chance the russian army bounces back in the winter so you are assuming that they they are uh, undergoing a bunch of setbacks right now that's what the media is telling us why do we have to trust the media why do we believe the media they have banned russian news outlets from social media whichever social media platform you can think of russian news outlets have been banned so the only news reports we get today 
are from the western perspective even the india indian news outlets there are like two three news outlets in india two three tv channels in india that cover what they call geopolitics yeah they also send their reporters to ukraine on ukrainian territory or ukrainian controlled territory they have not sent a single reporter in russian controlled territory why is this is there this lopsided coverage this unbalanced coverage we should see what's happening on both sides so we are only getting news reports from the western perspective the indian media completely parrots the western line so we cannot trust what comes out of these reports we simply can't trust it right now they are claiming the russians are falling back and they they are suffering big losses and all hey 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 let's let's see after a month or two what the map looks like of what of who controls what yeah let's see what it is so uh and yeah when it comes to winter the russians typically do well in winter uh, winter has typically historically been russia's ally whether it comes to the napoleonic invasion of russia the uh, winter ended up destroying napoleon's army or whether we're talking about operation barbarossa which was hitler's attempted invasion of russia they the nazi army the wehrmacht reached almost at the doorstep of moscow but then they paid the price of not being able to succeed, not being able to succeed the price they paid the punishment that they they suffered was the winter the russian winter and the russian army obviously knows how to deal with its own winter so one would expect that as the winter rolls in russia would have a big advantage in whatever it is planning to do so yes whether it is bouncing back or going further forward russia will most likely do well in the frigid russian winter okay aj says depopulation is going on in full swing across the world the last two years future thought on this uh, we one does see fertility rates falling all across europe and the western world and the fertility rates are way below the replacement rate the replacement rate of a population is when each woman on average has 2.1 children on average yeah and right now in the past 2 3 years especially after the the, the pandemic we are seeing uh, fertility rates crashing very badly in europe in the americas and so on in china the fertility rate is below replacement in japan it is way below replacement india is just at replacement or slightly below now so yeah if it continues like this you're going to have depopulation long run 100 years to 100 years the world could have a significantly smaller population so that uh, may not be the best thing in the world uh, obviously we should not have too many humans as well billions and billions it may not be good for the planet it is certainly not good for the planet it it imposes a massive uh, resource crunch on the planet which means that all the planet's resources are now uh, taken over by just one species a hundred years ago 99% of the non human biomass on the planet was wild animals 99% 100 years ago wild animals today 99% of the non human biomass is domestic animals sheep and cows and chickens and all that only 1% is wild animals that's how drastically we have destroyed the planet so if the human population declines it may not be a very bad thing but uh, it may not be a very good thing either for nations 
so one needs to have some kind of balance i think elon musk speaks about this right that the depopulation is coming it's not a good thing we need to actually increase our population so uh, a depopulation will affect certain nations more than other nations and that's going to have geopolitical consequences japan could cease being a major power in the next 100 years the fertility rate has dropped so badly the population is aging i'm not sure what the average age of the average japanese person is must be in the late 40s more than 45 that is terrible so the the average the average person is in their late 40s most likely even when it comes to china the population is getting older and older now they have stopped their one child policy but maybe it's too late and they're going to have a big crash of their population and there's going to be fewer and fewer people who are um who can uh, be part of the uh, workforce right so that's going to be problematic for china now when it comes to india we are still kind of okay we already have a massive huge population 1.3 something billion close to 1.4 billion so it is important for india to manage the population not let it become too large but obviously we don't want there to be a massive and very rapid population crash as well so yeah it's something that will have to be managed uh so yeah that's where we are that's where we are and it will definitely have a certain geopolitical consequences all right yeah porus okay what is this a shantanu says can you elaborate on the history of porus and the war between him and alexander what's your take on the statement that alexander was defeated by porus or chandragupta maurya i have never seen a statement about alexander and chandragupta maurya so uh So Alexander was this uh, brutal Greek warlord who rampaged his way west uh, east of Macedonia. Uh he destroyed the Persian empire, he burned the capital city of the Persians. And uh yeah, and then he decided to try invading India because he wanted to conquer the whole world. So he came across he reached western india the outskirts of western india at that time most likely it was the nanda empire that was ruling india the nanda nanda dynasty and uh, so alexander did destroy various settlements along the sindhu river the indus river he did a lot of atrocities killed lots of people he was a very bloodthirsty person he crucified lots of people alive in in persia and parts of greece and all that you know he did a lot of atrocities so in india also he did such things but then he came across this army of this small district level chieftain called purushottam in western india and this district level purushottam uh, this guy he nearly defeated alexander if you if you if you take the greek accounts seriously you hear that uh, the greeks tell you that alexander faced a tough fight but he was able to defeat purushottam and then he, because of his magnanimity he allowed purushottam to remain the king but as a vassal to alexander that's what the greeks tell us right but the truth is that purushottam porus they call him porus so porus was a very small chieftain one of hundreds of chieftains in western india it's like a district level administrator that's that's what he was and he nearly defeated alexander if you believe the greek sources now the funny thing is that not a single indian source 
speaks about Alexander. Not a single Indian historian or ancient record mentions Alexander at all. Even though there are mentions of his successor, Seleucus Nicator. Yeah. So that is strange that the Indians did not consider Alexander important enough to even mention him in their history. Strange, isn't it? So we know that uh, Alexander possibly defeated Purushottam and then we know that his soldiers rebelled against him. Because Alexander then th- said that we, we will go further east and we will fight the, the Nanda Empire. And the soldiers said, have you gone mad? And they rebelled against him, they mutinied against him and they forced Alexander to retrace his path and go back westwards to Babylon where he is said to have died of something, either alcohol poisoning or malaria, or maybe from the wounds and injuries he suffered during his attempted invasion of India. So that's what I can say about this. Uh, Had he tried invading India further east from where he was, he would have been totally annihilated. That's how powerful the Nanda empire was. The, the, The Nanda king was not a good king. It was a very unpopular dynasty, the Nanda dynasty, and yet they had a very, very powerful military machine, which was very rapidly defeated by Chandragupta Maurya under the guidance of Vishnugupta Chanakya. So just a couple of decades after the defeat of Alexander or the eviction of Alexander from India, you have his successor Seleucus Nicator coming back to reclaim some, some territory. And there was a brief war between the Seleucid Empire and the Mauryan Empire. So the Mauryans in just less than two decades had defeated the Nanda Empire and created their own empire in India, right? Chandragupta Maurya. So most likely it was the Nanda Empire that was in power when Alexander tried invading, not the Maurya Empire, most likely. But there is still a little bit bit of confusion. Uh, But we, we have to go by the mainstream consensus that it was the Nanda Empire, not the Mauryan Empire. So Alexander was defeated by Poros, or or maybe he defeated Poros, whatever version you want to believe. But the end result was that Alexander was forced to retreat from India. Whether he won or he lost, the end result was that Alexander was forced to retreat from India because his soldiers were too frightened to move further east into the heartland of India. They, were, they simply refused to follow his orders, to obey his orders. Can you believe that? So that was the story of Alexander's disastrous attempt to invade India, which ended up costing him his life, most likely. Ayush says, is cricket, cricket, the game of cricket, also a colonial thing, a British thing? Uh, The modern day sport of cricket is something that emerged out of England. Yeah, the bat and ball thing, yeah. But if you look at the story, of the childhood of Shri Krishna. There is this uh, episode in which he is playing a, a game on the banks of the Yamuna River. He's playing a game of bat and ball and the ball falls into the river and at that place in the river there is this giant snake who lives there and uh, he refuses to give the ball back or whatever and Lord Krishna goes down and defeats him and then spares his life and comes back with the ball, right? So there is a story of Lord Krishna playing a game of bat and ball, which is why people say that the British the British, accidentally rediscovered an ancient Indian game. So cricket has its origins most likely in India, but the British seem to have independently discovered that game about three, four hundred years ago. Yeah. 
All right, let's take uh, some other questions. Ah, Gilidanda. Yes, that's that's another game that's somewhat similar. It's uh, it's a folk game, an ancient game in India. Uh, Ritwik says India pulled out of IPEF and RCEP. So how will it help with the geopolitics of India in the tense region as geopolitics or geoeconomics is a fool's errand? So we don't know what was the deal. Uh, India has not pulled out of the entire Indo-Pacific economic uh, thing, forum, federation, whatever it is. India has pulled out of one of the pillars, which is the trade pillar. So See, the IPEF is a US creation. And when you have a multilateral organization, which has been created with by one big power, and when you have a multilateral organization in which you have one major power, then this organization is going to further and promote the agenda of the biggest nation within its umbrella. So the IPEF, when it comes to trade, will further the US agenda. The Americans don't want India to rise too high. They don't want India to become the next China. They want India to remain a middle power. Not a, They don't want India to become a great power. And that's why I would say that the terms of the trade pillar of the IPEF would have been most likely something that are not very beneficial to India. And that's why India has most likely done the right thing and pulled out of the trade pillar. There was something else before, the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. I'm not sure what it was. There, there were other trade uh, uh, organizations as well in which India did not participate. So, you know, India can do geoeconomics with a variety of partners. We we would like to see a multipolar world. We will we will certainly trade with every nation that in, in a way that's beneficial for us. We don't have to do it under the terms that the Americans impose on India. Right? So just because India has pulled out of the trade pillar of, of the IPEF doesn't mean that we are, we are going to stop trading with everybody. No. We're going to keep trading with everybody. But we will do it on mutually beneficial, beneficial terms, not on the terms dictated by the superpower. India will trade with France, India will trade with Japan, India will trade with Indonesia, India will trade with various European nations, India will trade with Africa, India will trade with the Middle East, India will trade with Russia, India will even trade with China to some extent and with the Central Asian nations. But we will do it on our terms in a way that's mutually beneficial. We will not do it as per the dictates of the superpower. So that is the deal. so it, it may actually help India to pull out of the trade pillar of the IPEF. Because if you do that, then you're going to have to agree to certain terms and conditions which may not be beneficial for, to, to you, but which will further the agenda of the US. So so overall good. I don't know what, what the exact terms and conditions are. Maybe it's, it's not been revealed, but I think it's a good, it's a good move. All right, what else? What else are we... Um, okay, can a coup in Russia or China prompt the West to further disintegrate them into smaller entities? Is it feasible? Well, it all depends on the outcome of the coup. Does the coup make the nation stronger or does the coup make the nation weaker? If you have a strong leader who is taking the nation in the right direction and he is... Uh, ousted 
by a group of other people and then the new political dispensation dispensation causes political and economic instability in the nation then it's going to be beneficial for the west but if the coup results in a stronger system a more stable system then it's going to benefit china or russia so if you have a coup there are there are rumors of a coup going on going around right now about a coup in china possibly i don't know so if there is indeed a coup and if that coup results in a stronger china then it's going to be bad for the west but if that coup is going to sow chaos in china and and create instability it will be a great opportunity for the us to possibly undermine china possibly even disintegrate it similarly for russia mr putin is a strong man he has absolute control over russia if there is a coup and uh, a weaker leader comes to power or a coalition of weaker leaders that will be a dream come true for the us but if there is a coup and, and somebody even stronger comes to power it's going to be a nightmare for the us so it depends on what happens what sort of coup it is and what is the outcome of the coup yeah so in case the coup creates instability and chaos it is certainly feasible for the west to take advantage of that and disintegrate the nation into smaller entities yeah that's how it goes right where else what else <laughs> is it coup or is it coupe the word c o u p coup is a french word so in french you say coup you don't say coupe but yeah if you were to go with the british pronunciation it should be coupe but uh, many of these words in the english language they come from the french language and uh, yeah so that's why we say coup coup k o o coup right um okay any other question should india also disintegrate other nations well there are two nations that need to be reconfigured in the long run first of all pakistan needs to cease to exist as in the in the shape and form it is today we need to ensure that pakistan the various regions of pakistan go their separate way ways uh the khyber pakhtunwa region and the northwest frontier province shall we look at the map where is the map here is the map so khyber pakhtunwa and uh, the all the in the northwest frontier province that should mostly go back into afghanistan because that's what the pashtuns seek and i think that is a valid justifiable justifiable demand balochistan should be free sindh should be free and the pakistani portion of punjab should also be independent for some time and obviously uh, pakistan occupied jammu and kashmir gilgit baltistan all of that should come back into india so yes india should disintegrate pakistan i do not wish any harm to the people of pakistan who are our brothers and sisters they are the same blood as us same origin same history same ancestry but i we do need to uh, reconfigure the map of pakistan and ensure that pakistan ceases to exist as a nation because it has been it is an artificial and temporary nation i haven't said that today right temporary nation here we go so pakistan is an artificial and temporary nation that was created by outside forces to harm india and to further those outside forces geopolitical interests it doesn't suit the interests of the people of the indian subcontinent that's why we need to reconfigure pakistan disintegrate it yes and ensure that the people of the region have a better life and a better future similarly we need to in the long run ensure that tibet becomes independent again india does not seek to rule tibet 
Tibet should be an independent nation again. That is the only solution to the India-China border dispute. China has no business being in Tibet. As long as China occupies Tibet, India and China will have very tense and very adversarial relations. That is unnatural. India and China have always been the best of friends for 2000 years, ever since India civilized China, right? So in the long run, India needs to ensure that Tibet regains its independence, which would mean disintegrating China in the shape and form that it is today. So that is the answer to your question. India needs to disintegrate Pakistan and also India needs to free Tibet from China. It's not an easy task. It's not that's something that's going to happen next weekend or next year. But in the next 20 years, these things need to happen for India and the people of the subcontinent to have a better future and also for the people of Tibet. The Chinese people can go their way. They have no business being in China. So yes, that's what needs to happen. Shall we take one more question? Shall we take one more question? All right. Yeah, I don't even know what what decoloniality is. Yeah, I haven't read those books these days, which are quite popular. Uh, Bobby says, also creates a buffer and Tibet was longing for independence since occupation. I could not agree more, yes. So if you have a free Tibet, it will be great for the people of Tibet. They will finally be free from nearly a century of foreign occupation. It will be great for that. It will also create a buffer between India and China. So if India becomes too powerful, it will be a good thing for China that there's a huge landmass that separates China from India. Again, if Tibet is free and if China becomes very powerful, it's a good thing for India because it's a big landmass which is independent. It's a buffer between India and China. So it is good for both nations, for India as well as China. So yes, that's what needs to happen and that's what India needs to engineer. The Chinese will not allow that. The Chinese will not be in favor of that, but India needs to do that. China coup flights cancelled. Yes, I just showed it to you on the uh, on the flight radar uh, website. You can see that the flights, lots, thousands of flights have been cancelled. Are you ritual? I'm <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Am I ritual? I'm I'm a human being. I, I'm sure you meant something else. I could not get it. I apologize, but uh yeah. Okay, Shaheen says, what do you think about India's three historical blunders as described by, by our Minister of External Affairs, Dr. S. Jayashankar? Is there any other blunder you want to add? What are the blunders? The three, he did say something. One was partition, one was um, keeping the West at arm's length, and third was, I'm not sure what it was, Not uh, the lack of economic growth, was it? I'm not sure. Uh one of the yeah partition obviously the allowing the creation of pakistan was indeed a blunder it was indeed a blunder yes um allowing someone like mr nehru to to be appointed and selected the prime minister was obviously a blunder because that's why all many of these things happened allowing the chinese to take over aksai chin and the government was sleeping about it for 5 years they were not even aware of it that's an incredible blunder incredible blunder you know what happened here's here's what happened you have this region over here uh, these days Google is playing nice but this region, Aksai Chin this big region over here is currently under illegal Chinese occupation. So what happened in the early 1950s is that the Chinese started constructing ro a road in this region and they de facto annexed this entire enormous region 
and the indian government was not even aware of it and when mr nehru was told about it he said what's the problem what's the big deal not even a blade of grass grows there grows there so yeah that's a major blunder and what other blunders do we have not allowing the air force to take part in the 1962 war if the air force had participated in the in the 1962 war the result could have been different or maybe not but at least it would have been a better result for india yeah so mr nehru did not allow the air force to operate in the 1962 war which is incredibly strange i mean who was he supporting india or china makes one wonder obviously he's a magnificent person and a great person but yes we are we have smaller people so we should should still think about it right and so on and allowing pakistan to take over uh, pok gilgil gilgit baltistan not allowing the indian army to recapture pok and gilgit baltistan that is an incredible blunder mr nehru said no we will not go go further the army should stop and we will go to the un why anyway there are so many such blunders but just a few of them i can uh, i can speak about right now okay i will take one more question one more question what do we have are we trying to decipher the ivc script the indus valley civilization script or are we still waiting for for westerners i think we have reached the stage where individuals can use can use scientific techniques to de- to decipher the script there is a person called yajnadevam that's the online handle they seem he or she seems to have deciphered the script i i keep saying that i'm going to study it i still don't have the time but it looks like a decipherment has been done it looks like it is vedic sanskrit anyway that that needs to be obviously corroborated independently but yeah we are we have individuals within india not in the academic system which is hopeless but we have individuals independent people who are trying to decipher it and there seems to be extremely good progress happening in that direction so let's not wait for anybody we should do it ourselves <laughs> tell us about mahapadmananda one of the most powerful kings founder of the nanda dynasty so mahapadmananda was i don't know what his uh, ancestry was either he was the son of the last king of the previous dynasty or he was the son of a barber or whatever but he was able to uh, establish his own dynasty the nanda dynasty he became very powerful in a very short period of time he was a very unpopular king he had very unpopular policies he uh, used to levy very oppressive taxes on the people and he was a very very ruthless collector of taxes he enriched himself at the expense of the empire and the people a king or an emperor when they when they levy taxes those taxes need to be reinvested in infrastructure and in in ensuring the prosperity of the nation and the people it it is the tax is supposed to serve the nation in the case of mahapadmananda he amassed it to enrich himself so the nation was suffering the people were unhappy but he was very powerful he had a very powerful army and in a very short period of time he was able to consolidate his power on very very large parts of india it is uh, yeah and then he had a number of successors who were all weaker and weaker and eventually we know that uh, the dynasty was supplanted by the mauryan dynasty uh, of whom chandragupta maurya was the first emperor anyhow that's the answer and uh, yeah 
that's it for tonight thank you very much everybody for all the questions uh, very interesting times we are living in may you live in interesting times that's what they say as a curse but anyhow that's where that's where we are so thank you for the questions very interesting session as always and i will see you in tomorrow's session which will be mainly about geopolitics and history and current affairs i will see you then in 24 or so hours until then take care good night good day i'll see you soon bye